0: A start. On demand. On demand. The Jets win in overtime, making it kind of tough for anyone who had to work early today because it was a late start. Take Greg, for example. He didn't get to bed until 12.30. How would you grade your trip to the hospital? The first ever report on patient satisfaction on hospital visits has been released. We'll speak to the organization behind it. Six months after marijuana was legalized, we hear from a Winnipeg woman who says the price of legal weed is astronomical and is a deterrent from keeping it clean. And while the Jets 2.0 chase hockey glory, we'll chat with some of the Jets 1.0 and the man who is bringing them all together for a reunion. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Lorette McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Wednesday, April 17th podcast for The Start. Greg Mackling, I could not stay up. I was in bed before the puck dropped.
1: I was too. I just, I got up. As the puck dropped. Yeah. Then did you make it all the way through? <laughs> oh, of course, man. Did not miss a minute of that game last night.
2: I thought about a strategy before I went to bed. I was like, maybe I should go to bed at like six. And then wake up at eight thirty, but I just ended up sleeping right through it.
0: I, I, do you go to bed at six?
2: <laughs> no, I went oh. to bed before like later than that, but I was my I was gonna get up and at least try to see some of the third and then instead I had this sleepy like, what happened? <laughs> we just wanted overtime. I'm like two bow
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> You mean your
1: host didn't erupt? hours did. I
2: actually woke up. As he was coming into the bedroom. So I'm thinking that he must have yes. yelled. And I woke up because then I was like, What happened in the game? And his voice was. All four it was of was us were clear. Up, jumping up and down, yelling awesome. and
1: screaming. It was fantastic.
0: What time did it end? About 11.35. Oh boy. What time so did you get
1: it, to bed? Uh, About 12.30. Yeah, it's
2: hard to come down from a high like that, eh? Like a natural high?
1: No question about it. And, of course, I had to hear the comments from Coach Maurice and some of the players and watch the highlights 19 times. So
2: So tell us. The Jets are coming home
1: tied 2-2, and they were the better team last night. St. Louis came out in the first 8, 9, 10 minutes. The Jets did not have a shot on goal in the first 10 minutes of the game, but the Jets uh, took a penalty, killed it off, and uh, seemed to uh, get their mojo. It was. Uh, it was. A, it was a good game, actually. Geez, see, it was yesterday, and I can't even remember. It might have been St. Louis that took the penalty, that flipped the script but a little bit. Either way, Connor Hellbuck was outstanding. Patrick Line was great. Again, last night, Kyle Connor gets the game-winning goal just over six minutes into overtime, and we're all tied up. All the consternation, all the hand-wringing. You can stop now. It's what do we of make three.
2: of the idea that the road games have been best for both teams? Is that anything, or do we just ignore that? How do you, how do you try and... Analyze that Any of impact. It.
1: The Tampa Bay Lightning had right. one of the best NHL regular seasons of all time. Went out in four games straight to Columbus last night. The Pittsburgh Penguins are out the four Tampa games
2: Co- straight. The Tampa coach—he gets fired today?
1: No, he just signed. No? A, no, he just got to sign an extension. Come on. Yeah, just a few months ago. You can't
2: be the number one team in the league and then go down 4 nothing.
1: Well, that's not all coaching. I mean, uh, let Something. me tell you, that was uh, one of the biggest upsets in sports history, what you saw in that series in Columbus last night. Absolutely incredible.
0: Now, the first thing I saw when I opened up Twitter, I was expecting to see Winnipeg Jets stuff, and the first thing I saw was a tweet from the Tampa Bay Lightning where they expressed to their fans, we don't have any words and we know you don't want to hear them. We understand your anger, your frustration, your sadness. Everything you're feeling, we get it. This isn't the ending we imagined and certainly not the one we wanted. Thank you for being there the entire way. And that has uh, 3.7 or 3,700 comments on that. And uh, yeah, I would have... I when I saw that Tampa Bay was you were talking about it the other day I had I guess I hadn't been paying attention I heard that they were down three nothing I thought what what because weren't they wasn't the one of the early predictions mm-hmm. Jets Lightning yeah correct yep yeah Jets Lightning Jets Flames in the semifinal
1: in the Western Conference final and I think the hockey news also had Tampa Bay and. Pittsburgh, if I'm not mistaken, in the semifinal. I'll have to look up that bracket, that prediction from the beginning of the season. I have a screen capture of it somewhere on my phone, so I'll dig into it. But uh, at this point, you've got the Calgary Flames are down two games to one to Colorado. They play in Denver tonight. Huge game for them to try and even up that series. If Denver goes up or Colorado goes up in Denver three games to one, I don't know, The Nathan McKinnon and the Avalanche are just playing absolutely mm. phenomenal hockey right now. And, well, Calgary Flames, their Achilles heel this year has been their goaltending, and uh, that reared its head in game three in Denver uh, two nights ago.
0: Now, the whiteout is well-reduced. From 15 to 11,000? This is why I do not
1: make predictions. I think I said yesterday they before bigger. we left, ah, they're yeah. gonna make it bigger. I- Clearly, this is a sign that there are finite resources with regards to security and policing. Exactly.
2: I was thinking last year we had much bigger parties. I think we had a 23,000, 24,000, and now they're reducing it from 15,000 to 11,000. And it has to do with, I guess, the police came to them and said, like, look, we want to best manage this. But we had parties double that size last year with no issues. So I wonder if it's just a cumulative effect of the the year we know they've had. We know police have talked about just being um, taxed to, to the maximum with everything from homicides to assaults to the meth crisis and so I, I do wonder how, how, what kind of role that's playing here.
0: Yeah, and as well, tomorrow is Bad Thursday. Right. As uh, we've now learned. I, I, once, I Sorry, used to just call Sorry, is that a it,
2: name? Like, that's what people have said to us?
0: Jordan Earl, uh, partner at 441 Maine, who's going to join us tomorrow morning to talk about Bad Thursday, said that in the industry, that's what they call it. Because
2: it's, because they're probably overwhelmed. Probably.
0: I used to know. I used to just call, call it myself, Good Thursday. Right. Uh, but then I was like, no, it's Great Thursday and uh, I guess it's bad Thursday in the industry because so, it's the busiest bar night of the year. But uh, the the whiteout, I guess, the Jets game will now start at is it 7.30 tomorrow?
1: 7.30, they announced that right after the uh, Islanders-Penguins game as the Islanders knocked out the Penguins. So. Yeah, and it was St. Louis that took a penalty, and it's ironic that it was a St. Louis penalty and a Jets penalty kill that flipped the script and kind of got the Jets going last night. So lots of folks excited, lots of folks who were kind of just hanging on to the bandwagon, pulling
0: themselves up <laughs> after that game last night. Kai Kaihai is releasing a report today, the first of its kind Patient satisfaction, as it pertains to your stay in the hospital.
2: Yeah, it's kind of neat because they went. I think uh, they did five provinces in Canada, including Manitoba. They talked to tens of thousands of people and asked them to sort of write their patient experience after they maybe had an, a surgery or they went in for some sort of treatment. And the numbers are. I, I don't know if they're higher than I thought they'd be, but in Manitoba, a good sixty-four percent of Manitobans said that they had a, they you. had a very good experience. I don't. I can't decide if sixty-four is decent or if it's not high enough. Like, are we going to be satisfied? Is sixty four percent because it's the majority, or do I feel like oh that still seems low? Well,
1: if we were in I don't know grade twelve, it'd be a C. Lit, that would
2: be a C, right? <laughs> no, right. No, it's a C. So, but but it, it's always you know it's uh, it's how it's spun or how people take it. Well, more than half are happy. Like I kind of I don't know with all this change, I was curious to see what people would have to say. Uh, 64%, I don't know if it's something you hang on a wall and say,
1: we're 64%. Like, I've Like, long insisted that the, the care that people get once they get past that triage desk is so much better than the process leading up to getting the care. I think that's the frustration for most people are the appointments, the assessments that get you to getting the care that you require. And I think for the most part, people are pr- pretty pleased. And this number would mostly back that up. Up or are pleased once they are actually getting the care that they require versus waiting to find out what's wrong with them. That's that's the glut and the problem in the system for most. I think
2: it probably you wait hours and then once it once that stuff kicks in, you're or happy days with it. or months. But there's also uh, some interesting numbers, and we'll get into it later about what the satisfaction was in terms of how the doctors and nurses talk to you which i think is a whole other part of the equation did you leave feeling like you understood like i've left even with minor cases and being like was that an ear infection or did he say throat and ear and that's a minor thing for your kids and then you imagine when you get that heavy diagnosis did you walk out of the hospital feeling like you actually got this great care or this explanation from your doctor or was it all like medical jargon and you were super confused (laughs)
0: Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Jeff Braun is here, Kelly Moore, Jeff Forte. If you are just tuning in and are not aware of the result from last night's game, Greg Mackling. Wait. Wait, what?
2: Now you can go.
3: Oh. I just wanted to give people a chance to... I
1: mean, just in case they've pvr the game and they don't, don't want to watch
0: it?
2: People did, are... Didn't
1: like, CKNW get a... Right, they got a, yeah. a phone call <laughs> on Sunday. Yeah. About the Masters and the fact that they were talking about the Masters on the sports cast because they had PVR'd yeah. the Masters and, and didn't want to hear. But the
2: guy complained because it was Monday. So he, he still hadn't watched it by <laughs> Monday and was still mad at the <laughs> Vancouver radio station for reporting Tiger Woods wins. Boy, you were really into that. Anyway, the Jets win.
1: <laughs> Jets win in overtime last mm-hmm. night, two-one in St. Louis. Kyle Connor gets the game-winning goal. I will not called it. I yes, you did call it. Explain, Jeff. Uh, it was a
4: weird call. I was already asleep before the game ended. Woke up in the middle of the night and I just looked at my phone. Oh, Jets won in overtime. And I didn't read anything further and I lay back down. I was like, I bet Kyle Connor scored the
2: goal. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, then really? I got to
4: work this morning I was like, hey, I was right.
2: <laughs> like you called it before that or you just called no. it in the middle of the
4: o- After I saw that they had won in overtime, I was Is like, that
2: a- actually calling something when it's already mm-hmm. over? Yeah. I didn't know. He it's a didn't reach.
4: <laughs> Unless my neighbor <laughs> screamed you know it and it subconsciously came into my it head. You have your
1: radio? like, <laughs> no? nothing? No. I'm going to give it to you. Uh, I love Kyle Connor's new Nick name, by the way, Uh KFC, you'll have to fill in the blanks, yeah. I'm not uh, giving you anything, but it's yeah. fantastic, it. picture yeah. of Kyle Connor the as, the, of as the colonel, it's outstanding, look it up on Twitter
0: or on Fabulous. the internet. Well, speaking of bucket, we got a, just got a text from Tim who says, I also stayed up to watch the Jets make St. Louis fans cry, I too couldn't fall asleep till approximately 12.30am with excitement with both alarms going off at 4.15. I'm just getting my first bucket of Tim's <laughs> coffee, and when I crash at 11 a.m., I think I will be needing another bucket at this time. So, in this room, who drinks coffee?
2: I do. I the do. Men, Kelly, Kelly I do. Jeff, Jeff 4J?
0: Nope. So, 4, t- wow, three non-coffee. Greg, did you get a steep tea this morning? Mackling? Of course. Okay. <laughs> you
1: have to ask. So, oh, sorry. I was probably just Drifting dropped out
5: there. there. Sleeping <laughs> <No.
1: laughs> with his eyes open.
0: Um, oh, I'm known to do that. I remember when I used to work those uh, the weekend morning news shift, and it, the shift would start at 3 a.m. It was a 3 a.m. to noon. And uh, on Saturdays in particular, Jeff, you remember when the couch potatoes first started back in, I think, 2006? That show was on live from 3 until 4 p.m., so I'd be there from 3 a.m. to 4 p.m., but on Fridays I worked till 7, so I'd get home and I'd try to go to bed, and I would fail, and I'd be in bed till like 12.30, just staring at the ceiling. I'd finally get like maybe a half hour of sleep. And uh, so at my, my healthy breakfast, my breakfast as champions, was seven. stop at seven eleven on the way in, pack of cigarettes, Yum. bag of Ruffles sour cream and bacon chips, <laughs> and a mega-sized Slurpee. Oh, me- speaking of mega, don't forget about the mega hockey fan playoff package qualifier we'll be doing later this morning on CJOB. But
4: don't you find when you're young you can get away with stuff like that? Like when I was in my twenties, it's like, oh, I got two hours sleep. Fine, I can easily get yeah. through the day. Yeah, that's no problem. And now, and then in your thirties, I think in your thirties is when you really need sleep, because now that I, since I hit forty, I was like, hey, I don't really need do as much sleep as I used to need. Mm. Yeah, I, I can think get that's by true. on five hours a night. No problem.
0: Yeah, it's weird. I I thought when we when I got switched to mornings, I didn't think I would ever adapt because I am a night person. I like to stay up until two, three in the morning. To wake up at two, three in the morning just goes against everything in my body and in my instincts but I've been able to adapt to it and even off off of 2 hours 3 hours you just kind of just kind of tough it out sometimes Except for, you just got
2: to do it. Does anyone here find themselves at 3 in the afternoon when you're driving home or whenever that time is Kelly's here Kelly sleeps here so whenever he naps here but but I I am <laughs> napping like I'm I'm ready to fall asleep in my car and so I often have to pull over or pull like I've put the air conditioning on in winter or roll down the win- window or whatever just to Really, the
4: window helps. I do that. Yeah. And, yeah, and crank
6: the music. Slap yourself in the face. Yes, like the that. music. The music helps. I
1: don't drive nearly as far as you do, Loren. But I have had to pull over and have a nap on Henderson Highway on my way home after a, a long day. Kelly, do you get away with the nap? What is your trick to staying awake? Yeah, he, and he never seems tired. Functional? No, What's and the he's deal? the first
2: one here yeah. every
1: day. He's going to make a confession today. Come or, on.
7: <laughs> Wow, the the pressure. What's the secret? secret? uh, Maybe it was going back to doing hockey play-by-play, and you just had, especially riding the bus and getting home in the middle of the night or getting home first thing in the morning and then going to work right off the bus. You just, I don't know, you get kind of used to uh, sleeping whenever you can. And uh, I've been really lucky, though. I I haven't done this at work, uh, but I know on the weekends every once in a while, I'll I'll have a little power nap. I'll fall asleep in a chair for 15 minutes or whatever, then I'm good to go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that's all it takes. I I know that. Like, I duck into a little studio. After the show and in, in years past, uh, I could hear people laughing outside the studio because mm-hmm. I had put my head down for a few yep. minutes because I thought, well, I'm officially off the clock. I'm just working on other stuff, so I'm going to take a quick nap.
2: That's uh, why they have pods and stuff like that in places like Japan. Sure. Like if you oh, give yeah. s- if people who power naps swear by it. I can't do it, but no, I wake up crankier than ever if you give me 20 minutes. What? I can't fall
4: asleep anywhere but like in my bed or on my couch. Really? I've done like 36 hours on planes and airports and never oh, felt I feel asleep sorry for more you. than 10 minutes. It, so. I
1: was going to say, why do you waste your time going to a studio? Just sit at your chair at your desk and close your eyes. You've, ah. se- you've seen that show. I've
0: seen you do it, yeah. <laughs> I've seen you do it. Uh, a little too much distraction, I think, for me. I need sort of a, a quiet spot. Or I need to be like, I, the one time I have fallen asleep on a plane, Jeff, I think I was able to fall asleep because I was in such a panic. We were in Houston for WrestleMania X7 back in 2001, I think. And the, the, the wake-up call came in and i picked up the phone and i just put it back down <laughs> and we went back to sleep for an hour and we so we missed our shuttle to the airport and we were able to get the next shuttle but there was like a chemical spill on the the freeway so we were there was a huge backlog and then when we got to the airport there are like five terminals so the shuttle comes in Goes into the first terminal, drops people off, and then loops around to the second, third, fourth. And we were in the fifth one. Of course you were. (laughs) Uh. So we had to run through this endless hallway to our gate, and we made it, and I sat down and out. I was just out cold because we made it. I was calm. That was my strategy.
2: We have a listener saying that when their dad drives to Texas, I'm guessing maybe a truck driver. Uh, he sucks on candies to keep him awake. I wonder if that's the sugar or just doing something.
7: Yeah, probably just doing something. I know uh, on our trips uh, back to BC to visit our family, a lot of the times uh, I would always uh, grab some sunflower seeds.
2: Or beef jerky. I find a road trip we yeah, do beef, beef jerky not bad like that. Yeah.
7: Sunflower seeds were the things that I always yeah. uh, depended on. You're
2: occupied on. then with it.
7: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And And trust me, that drive between Winnipeg and Calgary, it is mind numbing. Is
0: it? I've yeah. actually never made the, 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 road, the road trip oh, out Brett. west beyond, oh, beyond, beyond Verdon. Oh.
1: <laughs> I, that's oh. a it's it's basically <laughs>
2: from Verdon to, ke- <laughs> to like Medicine missing. Hat that you are. Once you get to Medicine Hat, I think it's fine because it's rolling and the drive's a bit better. There's
4: a lot no, of flat Alberta after I,
7: Medicine Hat.
2: Really? I, I find I need, Medicine I need, Hat's
7: I need, my... You know, I need to get to Canmore in the Rockies to finally feel like oh okay this is worth uh, kind of staring around at and, and seeing what's going on i'm going to be shouldn't honest i'm anymore? usually
2: just reading a book in the passenger seat for the entire thing so i shouldn't say the drive is easy but <laughs> gonna... it is <laughs> We want to
0: talk about this report, a first-ever report of its kind from an organization known as KIHI.
2: Yeah, that's the Canadian Institute for Health Information. And this is the first time they've gathered data from patients on how they feel about their hospital experiences. And depending on where you sit, if you've been in hospital recently, the results might surprise you. It found the majority of Manitobans said they had a very good experience with tens of thousands of people well, well over ten thousand people, sorry, surveyed right here in Manitoba. Jeannie Lacroix is with Kaihai and joins us now. Good morning, Jeannie. Good morning. So the results. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, the results show sixty-four percent of Manitobans who recently spent time in hospital actually called the care very good, and another twenty-two percent good. So the overall rate is eighty-six percent. Do we say? Do we consider that decent? Should we be happy with that kind of result?
6: So I think we're really excited because this is the first time we're able to report this data and I think this is important to sort of look at at a system level. And while we want to have all patients have a great patient experience, this is a great start for the system to understand where we stand and where we need to focus improvements in the future. Depending on who you speak to, Jeannie, a lot of hospitals
1: are working on their, uh, shall we call it, customer service.
6: Yes, yes, and it's an important area of care, and we need to think about that when we look at our overall quality of care. And this data is important because it helps the system understand where they can provide better information, and communication is that crucial aspect throughout the hospital stay.
1: Can I ask why this is the first time you've gone down this road and collecting this information and asking this question of patients?
6: Um, Because this is a survey that Kai has developed this survey with the provinces. We developed it in 2011 and we're very excited to be able to collect this data at a pan-Canadian level. Um, The five provinces have been administering this survey and now we're able to report on these results to help inform that overall quality of care. And it's important to reflect that patient voice because patients um, fill out these surveys and we use these data to help improve that care.
2: For those that are listening in, you know, Manitoba is undergoing some massive changes to its health care system and its emergency rooms and and other places. And I want to, we're not talking about from the the. The moment the person walks in the door, we're talking about once they're inside hospital, either requiring surgery or treatment when they're staying there, when it comes to the experience once inside the system. Is that right?
6: Yes. So this is really about hospital stays. So people that come into hospital for various procedures and stay overnight. Um, And they get to provide a number of sort of, they get to provide feedback on all aspects of their stay, which is very important for the system. And our report highlights, for instance, when they leave hospital, uh, you know, we see three out of four say they had good planning. But when it comes to things like understanding their condition when they're leaving hospital and their medications, only about forty percent said they. Forty percent say they didn't receive enough information, and so this is important for the system to take away, so that we reduce that confusion, anxiety the patients have, and you know it improves their care when they leave hospital, so they're not experiencing side effects and they know what to look for.
2: We're talking communication issues. What can we do mm-hmm. to improve
6: upon that? So our report highlighted some things that hospitals are already doing because they see this as important. So a small hospital in Ontario, Ross Memorial, is implementing a patient-oriented discharge program where they work with patients, give them pamphlets, toolkits, and extra information so they're really clear when they head home what they need to do next, when to see the family doctor, and when to call if they have an issue with their medications.
1: Now, I guess that this wasn't done to just give an excuse to be able to pat yourselves on the back and one another on the back and say, hey, we're doing okay. Obviously, this is something that's a very valuable, this this uh, information that's saying that people need more information. Was there anything else that surprised you and, and maybe stood out in this
6: survey? i think there is a lot of great results in in the report we're providing and, and it is a starting point um you know when we talk about coordination of care we see as well that you know there's area there's room for the system to improve around how the providers work together to provide their care uh, so we see that about half of patients felt that communication among health care providers could be improved and you know it's important when you're a patient to think about your providers being on the same page and being consistent in what they're telling you so you're not confused and you know what you need to do. Um, that's another area that highlighted you know, what we need to do there in the health system to improve that teamwork in the care.
1: I know that there are some healthcare professionals that are utilizing technology, especially when they're dealing with something like a cancer diagnosis. I know personally some doctors here in Winnipeg that are recording those first consultations. Uh, say if I'm the physician and I'm speaking to Brett and I'm giving him a, a, a diagnosis and a treatment plan and brett might be on his own we record that and then you can share that with your family and those that might be advocating for you is this something we might see more of down the line genie
6: I think I think certainly there are all kinds of interventions and, and solutions that uh, providers are using technology. And, and even in Manitoba, we highlighted uh, in our report, just simple things like gathering around and looking at your results. So the providers in Interlake Regional Health Authority, they're gathering and posting their results um, weekly on boards and all the providers look at their patient experience data so they can work together to see what are we doing? What are we doing well? Where can we improve? So there's a lot of great things that that can be done, and that's why we're highlighting these data, so that people can take that and work on it to improve the system.
2: All right, Jeannie Lacroix is with the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much.
0: We start this hour with a new movie out today. was shot right here in Winnipeg and portage la prairie starring Chrissy Metz. From this Is Us, she plays Kate on This Is Us. Loren, did you finish watching This I Is did, Us? I did,
2: and it was. I'm glad I did. You said get back into it, Loren. It's good. It's worth it. And so I did. It was good.
0: Mackling, did you ever get back on This Is Us? I hate to confess that I did not. Mm-hmm. No, it's okay. You don't. You don't. You, we don't have time to watch everything, Mackling. If we watched everything, we would, we would not we, have time for we, jobs. Yeah, we would defy. Uh, I think the rules of time. <laughs> uh, the movie, though, is called Breakthrough.
1: <laughs> Boys! Get off the ice! We're training
8: for the Olympics, sir! Cindy! Come on.
1: He's been underwater for more than 15
4: minutes. It's gonna be a recovery, not a rescue.
0: So here's the synopsis for the movie. After drowning in Lake St. Louis and being dead for almost an hour, John Smith comes back to life when his mother enters the room while praying out loud. It's based on a true story, adapted from a book written by the mother, Joyce Smith. And to talk more about what this movie relates to, water and ice safety, in studio with us we have Life Saving Society, Manitoba Branch, Water Smart Coordinator, Christopher Love, Christopher. Good morning to
9: you. Good morning. Thanks for the opportunity to come out and share some messaging.
2: How it's based on a true story, and I think that's more the idea of what happens to this boy afterwards. But when you, just the image of a kid on the ice on the river, and in this case, it struck me because it's shot in Winnipeg. We've seen that over and over again every spring and fall, and yet it doesn't seem to click about the the danger that's there. Do you think that we just Push it aside and uh, ignore it?
9: I, I would say many people do, and it's one thing that we're always trying to get the safety message about uh, out, out about. I mean, right now, we're lucky most of the ice is now gone, but the water is still really cold out there, and even going near the river if you fall in, It's potentially really dangerous.
1: I've ended up in the Assiniboine River in the wintertime up to my thigh and could not believe how cold it was. It was a horrifying experience. And I was someone who was taught to stay away from the water. I was an adult at the time, and I can't believe in retrospect that I did something so stupid, but we survived these things Hopefully, and can talk about the dangers of being on the ice. I think I'll follow up with uh, on Loren's question with regard to why do you think we fail to get this message, even those of us who know better?
9: Well, you know, if I could answer that question exactly, we wouldn't have as many incidents as we do. Uh, There's a lot of different reasons for different people out there. I think a lot of it is complacency. People just get so used to the fact we're a winter city here Mm -hmm. and we do do activities out on the ice. I mean, you know, we're famous for the skating trail at the forks. The big thing people don't always realize about that is that's monitored every day by the staff at the Forks. They do a very good job of ensuring the safety for their trail, but that doesn't mean every other piece of ice out there is going to be exactly the same way. We've got the same winter culture for, uh, you know, ice fishing and everything like that. Um, I was hearing stories up until, you know, we had final ice breakup. It's only about a week and a half or so ago for final ice breakup on the river. So about two and a half, three weeks ago, I was still getting stories about people going out at Lockport and ice fishing there because it's a favorite ice fishing shot or spot, pardon me. Uh, and there's open water right below the locks every single winter because there's so much water churn happening. And people were, I mean, there were there were some news uh, shots that I saw, people going pretty much five feet, seven feet away from the edge. Uh, and that's just tempting fate. And unfortunately, you, you fall under. Again, we're, we're talking about this because there's a movie coming out um, the vast majority of people who go into ice cold water, uh, and if they are fully submerged and they end up non-breathing, unfortunately, they're not coming back. I mean, scientifically, has it happened? Yes, hence the movie, but it's very, very rare that that's going to happen, and it's usually only really, really young individuals who have enough resilience in their body because they're young enough to be able to survive that. Majority of people, are going to go down. You mentioned... Um, having that cold shock response when you go in, probably took your breath away. Your legs probably went numb in maybe five to 10 seconds. Uh, If your whole body goes in, it literally makes you hyperventilate for about the first minute. Uh, And if you're below the surface, when that happens, you got water that's going directly into your lungs. And unfortunately that means you stop breathing. You're drowning within about 10 seconds.
0: So what should you do if if you If it happens where you go into the water, obviously you're going to be stricken by panic, but if somehow you're able to maintain some kind of composure, what should you do in order to react immediately?
9: Certainly, yeah. I mean, well, the first thing is plan ahead of time so that you don't end up going out on the ice or through the ice, Uh, and we could spend a lot of time on that. But if you do go out on the ice, you end up going through... First thing you have to keep in mind is you can survive it, but you need to keep thinking. And first thing is you need to get in a position where you can keep breathing. So that means face above the surface. If you plan ahead, you should actually have something that's going to make you float if you're out on the ice. So that could be a flotation snowmobile suit, sometimes called a floater coat, or it may sound silly, but in the middle of winter, wear your life jacket if you're going out on the ice. That way you're going to guarantee your head is out of the water. Then you need to figure out where can I get onto safe ice? And usually that means you need to turn around and go back the direction you came. Because if you were walking on the ice and then you fell through, the strong ice was where you came from. Mm-hmm. So you turn around, you head back. And then uh, the third thing I say is at that point, you need to kind of think like you're a polar bear or an Arctic animal, maybe a penguin too. If you've ever seen them get out on the ice, they're down on their bellies. They spread themselves out really, really far. And so you can think of, you know, your arms become those big polar bear paws. You get them as far up on the ice as you can. You try to pull your stomach up a little bit and then you kick your legs like you're trying to swim through the ice and that'll slide you up on top. And then once you're all the way up on top of the ice you stay low down that so your belly sliding rolling crawling whatever makes sense depending upon the exact circumstances back towards shore back towards safety
2: lots to think about there's lots of places in manitoba that still have ice on their waterways and so it's easy to look at the river and say oh i'm not going to worry about it this time of year but it, quickly on the cold In the spots where there is no ice and you do go in, we've heard stories of people wearing life jackets still dying of hypothermia in the cold water. Should the advice be to just stay off this time of year? Or are there tips I can learn if I go in and I'm wearing a life jacket, how do I quickly get myself to safety?
9: Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, uh, a life jacket is just one layer of protection for sure. Um, We would be advising you never go out alone. So if you get into trouble, there's always someone there who can help you. If you do go in, make sure you're wearing proper clothing. Uh, And again, that's part of your preparation in advance. If I know I'm going out near cold water or out on the ice, you're wearing warm clothing, you're wearing layered clothing. That's going to help you survive longer. Uh, And then make sure you're telling someone where you're going and when you're going to be coming back. Because if you end up in trouble and you don't meet your check back time, again, they can send someone out to look for you. A lot of those people that we do hear about that end up in trouble that don't end up coming back, they didn't necessarily tell someone when they were coming back. And then nobody knows to look for them until it's far too late. But if you do end up in the water, um, unfortunately, we're in radio, but uh, there's... a. Uh, Positions called the help position, huddle position, uh, which basically allow you to retain more body temperature and body heat so you can stay warmer for longer. Um, the help position is basically you roll into a fetal position, and if you've got a life jacket on, it allows you to float at the surface. Huddle position is you have multiple people, you bundled together in a Mm -hmm. ball. Uh, And those will help you survive longer. But the biggest thing is, from our point of view, is the prevention factor. So, I mean, this time of year, we got high water levels around the province. You're right. You go a little bit further north, there's still ice out there. None of that is safe this time of year. So stay off, stay well clear. Um, You know, yeah, it can be fun to look at things like the flood levels right now. But if you get too close to those riverbanks, Uh, because of flooding in various locations, they're going to be unstable and they can collapse because of the water undercutting or ice having caused damage to the riverbanks. So stay well back, stay clear. If you are uh, going out and you have to go out for whatever reason, you know, have that buddy be prepared with your uh, safety equipment, your life jacket, uh, and make sure you're wearing that layered clothing as your, your your starting measures. And then depending on what you're doing, you might need other measures. So, you know, if anyone's going out uh, fishing or anything like that, we uh, you can contact our website, lifesaving.mb.ca. We've got more safety tips on there for things you can pick up.
0: Christopher Love is the Water Smart Coordinator for the Life Saving, life Saving Society Manitoba branch, joining us live in studio. Talking about Breakthrough, a new movie out today. It was shot in Winnipeg and Portage La Prairie about a boy who drowned in Lake St. Louis and was dead for almost an hour before he came back to life. It's based on a true story. Christopher, thank you for joining us. We appreciate the time. Thank you. We want to shift gears. To the anniversary that's being marked today, six months ago, what happened, Lorraine McNabb?
2: Six months ago, there was tons of people who lined up, at, hundreds of them in Winnipeg at least, and one of them was this woman we've been telling you about all morning. Her name was Taylor. She lined up with great excitement, uh, like so many, because she was pleased to see the system was now legal and she didn't have to worry about purchasing her weed Illegally. Well, now she's speaking out to us because what she thought was an exciting day has proved to be, I think, is it fair to say, a six months of frustration. Global's Brittany Screenslade has been speaking with her and yeah, she's she's
10: upset. Frustration. Disappointment, I think, is probably even a better word because Taylor were who were not identifying any more than that just because. She doesn't necessarily want everybody to know about all of her business, but she did want to speak out about uh, a few things when it came to the legalization of recreational marijuana. Now, we know, like you said, hundreds of people lined up. Taylor was one of those people. She walked into that store on October 17th and said what she first saw was incredibly high prices for marijuana. And this is coming from somebody who wasn't necessarily out on the street buying it from a dealer all of these years. She smoked it for about uh, three years, but she's been purchasing it online through a company in BC for the past three years. And so she went in that first day and was like, oh, okay, you know, th- those prices are quite a bit higher. We saw that in the US when marijuana was legalized in those few states a, a few years ago. And those prices did start to drop we haven't really seen that here, at least according to Taylor and some other people that we've spoken to. Um, what Taylor says is and i've I've been getting emails from people over the past uh, few hours about this too, is that the prices are two to three times higher in the stores. So not only the pricing is what she says astronomical, but I've I've labeled this the three P's now. The pricing, the packaging, there's extreme amounts of packaging. She came, uh, we met her yesterday, she'd bought one joint, one pre-rolled joint from a store. And it looked like, you know those old Vicks or lozenges containers? It Mm -hmm. kind of looked like that. You needed to push down two plastic clips to get it out. The pre-rolled joint was inside, covered in plastic, another round of wrapping, it was just a lot of excessive packaging. She said she felt bad throwing something like that out after after just this one use. And then a lack of product, which is something we've heard a lot about struggling um, across the country in provinces for the past six months.
1: There are going to be a lot of people yelling at the radio right now because we've received text messages from them leading up to legalization. This was predicted by a lot of Mm -hmm. people, and I'm wondering how much of it could have been avoided with more consultation with people who had been using the product. But what are the suppliers saying? What are the legal purveyors of, of cannabis saying in terms of the pricing and in terms of why the pricing is the way it is?
10: Well, we had heard that the, that price was going to go down a little while ago. Delta 9 did bring their pricing down. Uh, according to some people here, not enough. But we also have the taxes on top of this. We have that social responsibility fee that is being collected by the government. Um, we, It's you know, just like alcohol, just like taxes on anything that you're going to buy. So we do know that there is money of that going towards taxes, as anything would be. As soon as you see this legalized and become a government entity, a lot of people saying, and Taylor saying, she goes, "I wanted to support this. I really wanted to be able to stop on my way home, uh, drop into a, a Delta Nine or a, you know, Meta or Tweed, whatever you may be, and pick it up on the way home." She goes, "Instead, I'm waiting three to four days, and for her, she uses it for her anxiety. So she gets panic attacks. So she says that's something that calms her down at night." Um, And she has to plan ahead. (laughs) How do you plan ahead for a panic attack?
2: (laughs) You don't. It's a prescription for her in many ways. Yeah.
10: So let's clear up
2: the idea of um, this internet purchasing because when I first heard about her Mm -hmm. story, I understood that you can buy legal weed online because all sorts of companies like Delta 9, Tweed, all Mm -hmm. the rest have an online place so you don't have to go to the store. Yes. She's
10: not talking about using a legal government-sanctioned store. No, this is somewhere that she's been ordering off of online for the past two and a half, three years. Like a dealer who has uh, a website? Essentially. <laughs> You no, know, we're getting very high tech now. So yes, I, I suppose. You know, yeah. this, is, this is not how people used to buy their weed in the past. This is not the shady turnaround in the back of the building. Uh, she said she even had to give them ID before because they, you know, these are dealers with with a bit of a heart. They didn't want to be dealing to children. people hmm. under the age of 19, according to her. Um, but w- we're seeing a lot of this. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting talking to people right now, um, Winnipegers, Manitobans, you guys know it best. They are very thrifty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. I think that's an appropriate word for yeah. Winnipeggers. So Taylor had something really interesting to say about being so thrifty, especially when it comes to a weed. Let's play the price
2: is the biggest factor for me right now. Um, Like I said, I buy no-name food and toilet paper, so why would I buy the fanciest strain of weed when I can get something cheaper that does pretty much the same thing? I can get from the website I order from. Usually, they have often a deal for 10 grams for, what is it, $40, um, versus I've paid 50 for 3.5 grams in the legal store. It's basically just three times the price. See,
10: Winnipeggers love a deal.
2: Mm-hmm. Does her no-name, so she's doing, in theory, in, in her mind, no-name weed. No-name weed.
1: <laughs> One of our <laughs> listeners just said that they bought two ounces of marijuana from British Columbia for about 200 bucks. Free shipping. They have free shipping <laughs> from B.C. This product would sell for about $80 for a quarter ounce, an increase per ounce of 220 So not
10: only the price, she said also that when you've walked in, and we've, we've heard this time and time again, that the variety... Is not there. There's been a lack of product. We've seen this over the past few months. So maybe what has been advertised on the legal um, online locations when you go in or they're sold out, we've heard this time and time again, you walk into some of these stores, they don't have it all. She said you'd find one that you like, and then it's not available the next time or one that works for your anxiety or whatever it may be. Whereas if she goes to this site, she says the selection's there, the price is better. It doesn't come with all of this packaging. So you feel a little bit more environmentally sound when you're buying your weed, if that's comes down to it. But these are all issues that we've been hearing about for a long time. And people now saying it's six months in, we need to be getting better.
2: We have talked to marijuana companies about this over the past few months, about supply and demand and the issues there. Have, have we heard back from any of them this week on where we stand in terms of a timeline? Like if, if I'm a user out there like Taylor, how long do I have to wait before it might at least come down a bit or the supply will at least be better? Is there a time frame?
10: Well, the price was supposed to have gone down a few months ago. We did see it go down a little bit. If it's going to continue to drop, that's going to be another question. We did see things in places like Colorado start to even out. It did take over a year for that to start happening there. So if we kind of look towards the U.S. and look towards what happened in states there, it might give us a bit of a better idea. Um, When it comes to supply, it's been an issue that we haven't struggled with Entirely here in Manitoba, we've been pretty good. We have um, been low on certain areas. I know Delta Nine has spoken about this before as well. We have not been as bad as other provinces, though, when it comes to a lack of supply. We've we've seen other provinces that have had really really struggled.
0: Yeah, we're getting a lot of text feedback as well here. Uh, Jack, for example, saying, if you go to any of the pot stores, you'll find that many people are buying the THC slash CBD oils and pills or super specialized pot. And he suggests that the long game is for when edibles Mm -hmm. are approved for sale. And I imagine that that will change a lot at these stores.
10: Well, and the other thing that Taylor said, too, is where she orders from online through this illegal website, she can already order edibles. So for her, that's another option as well. Mm -hmm. Something that aren't legal yet and something you clearly can't buy in the store because they're not legal, that is to come. But if you're somebody that wants that right now, that is your option. So that's another option for her is something legally you can't buy.
1: How shocked are people going to be listening to this this morning that this is still going on? Do you think that there are folks that are going to be surprised that... That it's just this easy. You just had someone send us a link. You, yeah. you want to check it out? Here's where you go.
10: I think if you're somebody that partakes, this mm-hmm. is not surprising to you. Right. If you're somebody that goes into the stores often or has been smoking marijuana for a long time, n- nothing that we're saying is is surprising to you, at least from people that I've spoken to. Um You're also looking at something that's been taken over by the government now. So there's going to be taxes. There's going to be price increases.
2: People were suggesting this morning you want to do it legally, but you can't afford it too bad. Alcohol taxed heavily. We know that. There is still a small black market for that, where people buy their Mm -hmm. booze from other sources or their cigarettes and all the rest. And so big market for that might just be the game. We have to play, so to speak.
10: Lynn Taylor said that as well. She is somebody that smokes every day for her anxiety and to, to help keep her calm. Um, she said she spends about $200 every couple months doing buying it online. That would be $600, according to her. If she were to be buying this in store, she said that is just not feasible for her. This would price her out of being able to do something that helps her overcome a lot of these issues.
0: You can read more of Brittany's story at cjob.com, globalnews.ca, and you can find a link to it on our 680 CJOB Instagram story. Brittany Greenslade, thank you very
2: much. It's a pretty stressful day, I think, for many parents and students in Denver, Colorado, where every public school in that city has been closed. Because police are searching for a woman who allegedly bought a gun after becoming, quote, infatuated with the Columbine shooting. So we are just days away from the 20th anniversary of that shooting. I believe it killed 13 people back in 1999. And police say, while they're always on heightened alert whenever these anniversaries roll around, this time they think they have a really credible threat. This woman has flown to the city, to Denver, from Florida after... Uh, They say she bought this gun and she's still at large. So it's have parents on alert. And one of them is Amber Ragsdale. She lives in Denver and her son is home from school again today because of the threat. She joins us now. Good morning, Amber. Good morning. So tell us what you were told. What did the school say to you when it came to what the huge concern was here?
8: Well, it all happened actually while I was in line to pick up my son from school. So, Um, we usually park and then it's like slowly goes through to pick them up one by one and it wasn't moving and I wasn't sure what was happening. And then my husband called me because he actually got a text alert on his phone from the school that they were on um, lockout. Um, And so lockout is where you have to physically go in and present an ID to get your um, child from the school um, where no one's going in or out. And so it took about an hour to get him. Um, and then more and more news started coming in and they started communicating with us and emailing us and telling us that um, it was a very credible threat. And basically, it's just something they don't want to risk with our kids.
1: Amber, uh, lots of us have friends and or family in the United States. How commonplace is a text message like this? Is this the first time you've received something like that?
8: Yeah, it's the first time I've ever received something like that before. I mean, normally it's if there's, like, lightning or something happening and they want us to go in to get them. It's never, you know, anything this serious, so it's definitely concerning.
2: How old is your son in what grade?
8: Uh, He's in first grade, and he just turned seven. And um, I asked him what they told him at school because I didn't know how much they told him. And he just said it was a a bad guy. And I actually showed him a picture um, because I wanted to show him that, you know, not all bad guys are these scary people you see in movies. Like, she looks like a totally normal person. Um, so it, I think that makes it scarier for them, too.
0: Did they have to talk to the kids at all about sort of the the, the background of this, the history of, of what's going on with uh, the anniversary coming up for Columbine?
8: Um, he, did, he doesn't know anything about it yet. Because um, I, I asked him, kind of, but it was one of those things that... I didn't want to give him too much information and kind of, I don't know, ruin his innocence more if I don't have to. Um, It's kind of scary. It's something that we even have to worry about for, you know, these little kids, but we do.
1: That's what I wanted to ask you about, Amber, this whole idea. We know that there are schools and uh, different uh, public places, workplaces where they have active shooter drills, uh, something that we're just, you know, just even saying it out loud is difficult to say it out loud. Talk about the difference in the culture in the United States. There's a perception from this side and from where we sit right now that it's dramatically different. Is it dramatically different with Uh, the use of terminology like active shooter drill?
8: Um, You know, he hasn't actually done anything like that I know of. They do know, like, drills where you stay in your classroom and be quiet. I think they don't give them as much information at his age about it, but just more of if there's a bad guy, we stay in our classrooms, we stay quiet. So they don't hear as much of it. And I'm guessing maybe that's something they do for as the kids get older. Um, But I'm glad that they make it a little bit um, more innocent for them.
2: Amber, I'm not sure of your age or where you were even living in 1999, but I I wonder 20 years later what what the legacy of Columbine is. And and do folks only have to say that word to still fear feel the fear they may have felt that day and and connecting that with this woman now being in that city with what FBI calls a credible threat. I'm just curious what you're feeling knowing what happened all those years ago.
8: Oh yeah. It's, it's horrifying for me because I was in eighth grade when it happened and I wasn't in Colorado. I actually was living in Kansas, but I have several friends who actually were in Columbine when the shootings happened. Um, and the bits I've talked to them about it is just, I don't know, I couldn't even imagine it at their age. And so it is terrifying just knowing you're sending your kids to school and that this happened, um, you know, at some point and it could happen again. Um, it's, it's really hard as a parent knowing that you have to let your kids go out and possibly be in danger like that.
1: How how front of mind is that, Amber, in, in your conversations in your social circle, the, the the idea, the threat, the the fear of, of gun violence in, in a school?
8: Um, I haven't talked to anyone about it since it you know, this all happened yesterday, but um I feel like it's almost it says it is is almost kind of their it's more normal for them. They're realize that it is real and it is something serious that you don't Um, you know, you don't mess around with. You don't just take these threats lightly.
2: So schools were, you pulled your son out yesterday after what you called a lockout. Schools in Denver closed today due to what the FBI is calling this extremely dangerous uh, of a situation. Have they given you any sense to how long this could go on? Would be schools locked out for the foreseeable future until this woman is arrested?
8: They, They haven't at all. And that's actually kind of a concern because, If they don't find her, you know, are they eventually just going to start school again? You know, how long is this going to last? Is this going to push off summer for the kids? Um, You know, we don't know. We were just told that they were going to have a meeting at like 3.30 in the morning. But then at midnight, we got texts from the schools that they decided just to close them all um, for today only. So we're still waiting to hear what their plan is for tomorrow. Amber
0: Ragsdale lives in Denver. Her son is home from school again today after a woman from Florida flew to the city after buying a gun said to be infatuated with the Columbine Massacre. Amber, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate the time.
8: You're welcome.
0: You came to an unfortunate conclusion, realization Mm -hmm. that uh, a certain milestone is... 30 years plus 10.
2: 30 plus 10. Plus yeah. 11,
0: isn't it? Wasn't no, it 78? It's 10. It's
1: 10. Oh, okay. May of 1979, the Winnipeg Jets. It was a Wednesday. I know it was a Wednesday because I had to deliver papers and in that you day to Brandon Chopper. What time? Uh, well, about nine o'clock, mm-hmm. they probably handed the last Avco World Trophy to the captain of the Winnipeg Jets, Lars Eric Schoberg, the now late great Lars Eric Schoberg. Uh, next to me is Jeff Kerbison, who has written a fantastic book about some of the uh, greatest moments in hockey history, let alone Winnipeg hos- hockey history. Because, Jeff, we've covered this territory before, but the hotline was one of the best lines in the history of the game, not just the history of Winnipeg or in the History of the WHA.
11: Yes, but that line wasn't there
1: for Correct. that fortieth anniversary
11: uh, team. But they certainly were. They were a groundbreaking. I'm trying
1: team. to sell more books for the
11: transition. What I was gonna say was where were you you here today? Where were you during the book launch? I needed you then.
2: Title of the book is
11: The Hotline.
2: There
1: you go. Mm-hmm. Just Very aproposly named. So <laughs> the, after the uh, 77-78 season, Anders Hedberg, Ulf Nielsen moved on to the New York Rangers, and it was another group of players that the Jets bought from a flailing World Hockey Association franchise in Houston that took them to the promised land one last time, correct?
11: That's right. So the Houston Arrows, who th- people thought might have got into the NHL a year or two before that, folded and... Michael Gabadi and Barry Shanker got on a plane and went down to Houston and essentially bought the team. They didn't get every player. Some players had clauses in their contract that they couldn't go to a Canadian team. But essentially they got Terry Wiskowski, Rich Preston, Scott Campbell, Steve West, Morris Lukowicz. And that team was kind of molded into the, uh, the existing Jets team. But after five years or six years of beating each other's brains out, they didn't like each other. So if you could you know, as you can imagine, in a close dressing room you've got these guys you hate their guts and you have to go out there and play another team, it didn't work. So for the first half of the season, the Jets were kind of, you know, lower than the middle of the pack and if they lost a game, the Jets guys would blame the Houston guys and the Houston guys would blame the Winnipeg guys. And on the road after games they'd each go out their different ways to have a, a beer or two after the game. And no one thought that they were going to be doing any kind of damage in the playoffs. They were hoping they were going to make the playoffs, and uh, and then they fired the coach and brought in this guy Tom McVie, who was John Fer- one of John Ferguson's buddies, and uh, and things miraculously turned around.
1: Well, nice segue, Jeff Gerberson. We welcome to the program Scott Campbell, one of the cornerstones of that melding of two franchises, the Houston Arrows and the Winnipeg Jets, and the aforementioned coach Tom McVie. Coach McVie, good morning thanks for taking some time with us this morning. Uh, Jeff Kerbison, just mentioning the fact that you had a strong relationship with John Ferguson. Tell us how John Ferguson approached you about coming to Winnipeg to, to coach to the jets in their final part of their final WHA season.
3: Well, uh, he had been, uh, he had met with general manager in uh, New York and, uh, apparently got, uh, he got the hook and, uh, I was in, he went to uh, Winnipeg and, uh, I went up, uh, to see him, uh, and, uh, didn't stay, but just went back. And, uh, uh, it had been, uh, where I was coaching Washington Capitals and, uh, they fired me. So, uh, I was standing on my front porch for about five months yelling at the mailman and, uh, I had nothing to do. And, uh, so Fergie called me and, uh, wanted me to come up there and coach and, uh, so we did. And, uh, it was, uh, it was the finest, uh, you know, I coached a long, long time, 27 years, but my time in Winnipeg, uh, was the best. It was the very best. I just loved Winnipeg. I loved the, the, the old rink, even though the, the new one is beautiful. Uh, I just loved the, uh, the players were, were hardworking guys and got them to even work harder. I know Scotty Campbell was mad at me half the time, but um i coached like 27 years i don't remember anyone dying on me
2: (laughs) let's hear from scott right here i just heard scott laugh scott is that true oh tommy was a true gem i mean i loved
5: playing for him and uh he was always kind to me i don't know what he's talking about (laughs) other than maybe maybe other than maybe when he made me throw up uh and skated me into the ground there because he thought i guess i was a little out of shape but uh Things like that happen, but uh, all in all, it was it's all good fun when you end up winning a championship.
11: And, can, I, uh, can I provide a sorry. bit of color to that throw-up up? story, though, Scott? Sure, go ahead. So if uh, I recall, you had just had some kind of surgery, and your jaw was wired shut, and you'd been off skates for a little while, and then you came back to practice, and Tommy bag-skated everybody, and while your legs were starting to go, then your stomach went... And then, if you can imagine having that kind of uh, stomach problem with your jaw wire no, shut, no,
1: no, no. Come I
11: know on. It, and then Terry Ruskowski had to get you off the ice. Yeah. and then it wasn't it, pretty. Yeah, no, and, this
2: is true. Oh, girl.
5: And then I, I
11: don't. Wanna, and then I think what you had said to Tommy as you skated <laughs> off was said. You said, "Is that the best you've got, Coach?" And he turned to you and said. Wait till tomorrow. Wait
5: till
1: tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds all true. All corroborated.
3: I, <laughs> S- Scott? I, I actually I actually helped Scotty out. I said, when he was feeling like that, I just skated over and told him, why don't you get sick in your own time? I don't <laughs> work. <this way. laughs>
1: <laughs> now, these, these coaching practices would never be allowed today but between the an NHLPA and, and video and uh, everybody's cell phone and Twitter and everything. So uh, it's great to, to hear the behind the scene things. The way uh, Jeff laid things out earlier, Scott, was that the fact that, that you had a, a very divided dressing room? Because I remember booing the Houston Arrows, and uh, I never threw anything. I, I wanted to throw stuff at you guys back in the day, but my dad wouldn't let me. <laughs>
5: Well, there was some of that. I, I, I it's funny because uh, Kim Claxon and I chatted a lot about this when we were out at the Heritage Classic and went on, on the phone in between and stuff. And he didn't, he didn't think there was that divide in his mind. He thought that they, that they had kind of welcomed us in. And I, so I, I, I think it, it, I don't know how much of it was perceived or not. Uh, whether we, I know that we were not a tight knit group, though. There, that that is true, and uh, I don't think there are definitely a couple factions in the dressing room there, where I don't think it was, I don't know how much it was hate, I think we knew we had to get along, but uh, we we had the wrong coach in at the time, in all respect to Larry Hillman, he didn't really know how to handle us, and uh, and the man on the other line there, Tom McVie, certainly did, he knew how to come in and, and take care of guys that were if we're acting maybe a little spoiled or we weren't getting our way or whatever you know, little things that were happening on maybe both sides of the fence, from the Winnipeg perspective and the Houston perspective, uh, we, we got the right guy to come in and, and straighten us all out very quickly. And uh, Fergie got the right guy. Tom McVie was the perfect coach for our hockey club. And uh, not only was he tough, he was uh, an excellent, an excellent taskmaster, but he was also tactically very sound. And uh, we needed that as much as anything, uh, because we needed to be drawn together as far as systems and everything went. Uh, you know, we had two different styles of play with Houston and Winnipeg, as you'll remember, because you you know used to yell at us because we were a little dirty. I think as sometimes we're referred to, uh, and it was a, uh, a two different contrasting styles that we definitely needed to uh, get together. And Tommy was able to do that. We, we did have Tommy's meetings that had uh, we did bring in. He had loved his meetings and. Uh, more so than we did at one point. And we did have some hats made up that had ear flaps on them that said bullshit protectors on them. So. We, we we dealt with Tommy as best we could, but he was the guy that led us to it. He gets a ton of credit for that.
1: All right, Scott, uh, we'll uh, take a break on that note, <laughs> and uh, we want to continue this conversation, uh, but we'll step away. Tom McVie, head coach of the Winnipeg Jets uh, for their last season, at least the the final part of their last season in the World Hockey Association, and their first coach in the National Hockey League, and Scott Campbell, who played for the Winnipeg Jets in the WHA and the. NHL celebrating the 40th anniversary of their final Avco Cup championship. Three and seven years. Some people forget how dominant a team they were. Jeff Kerbison is here. As we uh, dare to dream of Winnipeg's next hockey championship in pro hockey, we reflect on the last one in 1979. 40 years ago, the World Hockey Association played its final championship game. The Winnipeg Jets collected the final Trophy in the World Hockey Association, Jeff Kerbison is here to celebrate that with us and tell us about the celebration coming up June first, nineteen seventy-nine. We've also got Coach Tommy McVee and defenseman Scott Campbell on the line. But Jeff, what have you got planned for us coming up June first? Well we've got we did
11: one of these events last year with the seventy eight team, which was the one that had the Hotline. Remember the hotline? Yeah, they were pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> So we flew in Alf and Bobby and, and, uh, and Anders and a bunch of other players from that team, and it went really well. And then I had some guys from the 79 team saying, well, when are you doing the 79? 40-year reunion. <laughs> no I pressure. Like, oh, I, yeah, I just finished this other monster event. So we're doing it uh, this, uh, this end of May and early June. The signature event is going to be a banquet at the Radisson Hotel, uh, which will be a dinner Unless there's a Jets game, because last year we had that problem where we had this thing planned nine months in advance, never thinking the Jets would make it that far. So it's a dinner, unless the Jets are playing that night, then it's a luncheon. And we're going to have, last year we had about 280 people at it, and we're hoping to have the same kind of thing here. So we'll have a Jet at most tables. We're going to have a video presentation. We're going to have all the players up on stage. We're going to have a Q&A with the audience. And uh, I, we might give Tommy the mic a little bit because <laughs> he can work a crowd and pardon me, we're going to, and it'll just be it'll be a time machine, right? Because we're going to have people going back and telling these stories from 1979. And pardon me, and I think it'll be great. We uh, last year we had you just, you, you would be in line at, uh, to get a drink, and there's Anders Hedberg, and then you're going to do something else, and there's Wolf Nilsson, and there's Willie Lindström, and so this year we've got a different crowd of characters, some of the same, but we just had. um, Maybe the biggest name on that team, Kent Nilsson, just got back to me a couple of days ago. The He's the Magic coming, Man. The Magic Man. We have Terry Ruskowski. We have Rich Preston. We have, of course, uh, Scott Campbell. We have Kim Claxon. We have L- Willie Lindstrom. We have Peter Sullivan. We have Bill Isouk. We have Lyle Moffat. We have Marcus Matson, We have Roland Erickson. We have Glenn Hicks and Paul McKinnon and John Gray. And I'm forgetting a couple of people, uh, Joe Daly. So it's, I think, it's 16 players. And uh, and plus the coach, and I think it's going to be a, f- a fantastic time.
1: Scott, how good a hockey player was Kent Nielsen?
5: Oh, fantastic! Uh, they're, they're really the, the magic man doesn't really do him justice as far as I was concerned. Uh, I had the opportunity, uh, Tommy had a brain cramp and put me on the power play with him a couple times, and um, I, I, can, I can remember him one time making a drop. I thought I was coming in behind him, and he was dropping, making a drop pass to me, and I was going to one-time the puck at the net, and he dragged his foot around. I don't know how he did it, booted the puck back up onto his own stick. I almost fell in my head. Uh, thinking the puck was supposed to be on the spot and he walked right into the slot and just drilled it into the top corner. Um, and we used to see it in practice all the time, stick handling the puck in the air with the puck in the air. And I only got to play the one year with him, but uh, it was one fantastic experience in seeing a true magician work.
1: Coach, did you have appreciation uh, working in the National Hockey League as you were during the heyday of the WHA Jets? just how good a hockey team they were, and were you surprised at how much talent they had in seventy eight and seventy nine when you got here?
3: Well, like I told you, I coached a long, long time, and I never coached uh, a team like that. That's the best team, uh, best bunch of players that I've ever ever coached. and, uh, all of them on that team had a job to do, and you're talking about Kent Nielsen because he's only around 20, 21 years old at the time, and he, he was just an unbelievable player. In fact, uh, Peter Sullivan, we were doing two-on-one drills a lot because it was good for the goaltenders, good for defense, was good for the players to move in the puck. As a matter of fact, uh, Peter and uh, Kent would go on the they break away together, two-on-one. And they were so good, and they were like, Scotty just said, he was kicking the puck, and they were going back and forth. Uh, the goaltenders were upset. They were shooting it into the open net. The defensemen were all, and I had several times I had to stop the drill because everyone was getting so upset. It was a, they were that good. They were that good. It was just, in fact, I thought I was coaching the Harlem Globetrotters.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> we were just really scratching the surface here. The best way to hear more of these stories and to remember along is to get tickets in 20 seconds. How do you get tickets?
11: You can go, we have an Eventbrite site. You can go there and just put in Winnipeg Jets 1979 re- reunion. And you can put the same thing in there uh, on Facebook and on Twitter. And we've got sites there for people to go in and, and buy tickets.